try that. Sorry, Tony. Thanks. We'll be in Job 39. The hope will be we can actually cover it. We'll cover the whole chapter today. And I'm going to go ahead and read for us. Um, if you jump back to chapter 38, we'll, we'll start in verse 39, and then I'll, I'll read down to verse 4 of chapter 39. This is the word of the Lord. This is what it says. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? When they crouch in their dens, or lie in wait in their thicket, who provides for the raven its prey? when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch, bring forth their young, their offspring, and are delivered of their young. Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Let's pray. God, I'm reminded right now that your word comes to us. And when it comes to us, Lord, it's not exactly like what we think it's, it is. And it just shows the, the uniqueness it shows the, the glory and the splendor of what, who you are. So, Father, I pray, Lord, even though we're, we're reading a text today that seems kind of obscure, I pray that we would see what you are communicating to us this morning. God, give us the grace to see your word rightly that we believe on the Lord Jesus, that we would see you, Lord Jesus, more clearly this morning through this picture of Job, the shadow of Christ, that we would, as we look at the shadow, give us the grace this morning to see and so believe on the substance. Help us, we pray. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it deserves um, just a little bit of review this morning. Today's, today's message is entitled, Humble Silence, What Shall You Answer Him? Humble Silence, What Shall You Answer Him? Now, Dave McGrew preached last week, and if you remember, um, he preached on uh, just the, the, the transcendence or God's otherness as well as His imminence, which is His nearness to us. And today, it just picks up, picks up where Dave left off last week. But where Dave le- talked last week, it, it really focused on the created order. He talked about the creation. He talked about all different pieces. Uh, but this week, God really makes a turn as he talks to Job. And this week, uh, if you think about last week, him showing Job all the weather patterns, <laughs> this week he pulls out all his animals it's like, a, it's like a grandpa who comes and shows his children all these, all these different pictures. Hey, check this one out. What, what do you think about this animal? Now, I want you to remember what, what, Job, what God says to Job in chapter 38. If you turn there, it, you shouldn't have to turn. It should be the same page. Uh, Job 38, 1 through 2. 
It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, or gird up your loins. I will question you, and you make it known to me. So today is, is going to be a ton of different questions we're going to be, be confronted with. And now you may wonder, you're probably sitting there and wondering, Daniel, why would we spend another week talking about animals? We're literally just going to keep referring to the mountain goat. We're going to talk about the lion. We're going to talk about all these different animals. And why? Why would we spend that amount of time on there? Well, a couple of reasons. One, Proverbs 6, 6, and you could look at a different bunch of different passages to see the precedence for this. But how often in Scripture the Bible tells us to look at a certain animal and learn a lesson. And that's exactly what God's going to do to Job today. That's Proverbs 6, 6 says this. It says, go to the ant, O sluggard. So he tells the sluggard, the, the, the uh, lazy person, consider her ways and be wise. Or even Jesus. Jesus even says in, in another place. He tells people, could, he, he doesn't just say consider. He commands them. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. So all throughout Scripture we see God tell people, look at this animal. Consider it. And we're going to see God do that over and over today. I want you to see, if you, if you get nothing from else, else from today, get this. It's at the top of the uh, page of notes. It says, as we behold the undomesticated animals of creation, with silent humility we behold the undomesticated sovereign creator. I want to say that one more time. As we behold the undomesticated animals of creation, with silent humility, we behold the undomesticated sovereign creator. As one commentator said, I thought was really helpful, God is inviting Job off the farm, and he's inviting him into the wild, and he's saying, come, Look at what I've created. Now, d- just this last week, we went, like I said, we, we went down to, uh, visited my uh, brother-in-law and sister-in-law uh, down in Washington, D.C. And, and in D.C., they have the Smithsonian Zoo. It's my first time ever being there. But I think uh, there was something about the zoo as we get there. It's, there's something very compelling, and there's also something very strange about it. Um, I think we're the only people in the history of humanity that has ever had the leisure in a, in a large city to be like, we're going to go look at exotic animals. Uh, zoos are something that is very strange, and there's a deceptive tendency for us to think that we understand what, say, a lion looks like, or say, a tiger looks like. Like at one point, I was, uh, we were looking in the lion, lion enclosure, and you had these like two 600-pound cats and they were sitting, like, grooming themselves, <laughs> like, like, just so eloquently, right? And I, I thought to myself, even as I was sitting there watching them, this is strange. That creature's not acting like God created it to, to act. You know why? Because God never created that creature to live in a 50 by 50 box. Simply. Very simply, that's, that's the reason why. Now, I'm not saying zoos are wrong. I love zoos. <laughs> we enjoy zoos. We go to the zoo. It's a lot of fun. But I think zoos can be very... Um, what's the word? Deceptive? Deceptive would be a good word for him. Because we can begin to think, oh, I know what a lion looks like. Actually, I have no clue what a lion looks like. You know why? Because that lion wasn't tearing apart a gazelle. <laughs> that, that lion was not in his natural habitat. That tiger was not in their natural habitat. That tiger, and so I want you to see, look down in uh, chapter 8, 
or 38 of uh, verse 39. And God, God challenges Job. He says, the animals trust God's provision. That's, the, that's this first heading, the, the animals trust God, God's provision. Listen to what he says. He, he challenges Job, and he says, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? And, and God is simply challenging Job. He's basically saying, the animals trust me? Why can't you? The animals trust me, Job. They don't, they, don't, they don't provide for themselves just by themselves. They, provide, they are provided for from God. And I want you to see God's sovereign rule even over the king of the jungle. Now take the lion. Go back to the zoo illustration with me for a second. Take the lion being confined to a 50 by 50 box. Um, we'll even hold her cub maybe at the zoo. We'll be like, oh look, I held a lion cub. And I want to be like, did we really hold a lion cub? Because if you were in, in the wild and you held one of the lion cubs, uh, I don't think the lioness would be very happy with you. We're like a bear. Maybe we can hold a bear cub, but the moment the mother bear sees that you're holding the bear cub, is she going to be like pleasant? Well, not really. Take the lion out of the zoo, put him in the Sahara, and see if we act any different around him. I don't think I would be sitting there going, look, Simi, <laughs> go, go pet the lion. It's okay. We, we, be, we, we think how cute they are, and then we look at them on the Sahara, and oh yeah, by the way, there goes that cute little lion we saw in the zoo. It's now hunted down a gazelle and is ripping it to shreds. That's not quite the picture we think about with the, gazelle, with the lion, is it? That's not the picture that makes us feel well about the, about the lion. And he asked Job, hey Job, can you satisfy the lion's hunger? Obvious answer, absolutely not. Maybe, maybe if, he, if the lion feasted on him, but not, not, not any other way. And not only is it over the animals trust God over the creation, but also not only over the king of the jungle, but also the scavenger. Listen to what he says in, in verse 41. Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? God says to Job, hey, not only that lion that just killed the gazelle, but you know the thing that comes and feasts on it after the lion's done? Yeah, I provide for it too. Can you do that? (laughs) Immediately, Job's like, "Ah, no, I can't do that, actually. And there's something amazing that begins to happen when we pay, pay attention to the world around us. We begin to see the kind of dynamic of a world in a post, post-fall world in that way. I'm not sure if you ever considered this. Go here with me for a second. And this is kind of an application, but it's, it's kind of an aside application. God is showing Job something very significant here. Every time an animal is provided for, there's a small taste of the gospel. Let me tell you what I mean by that. The animal, the lion, take the lion for instance. The lion takes the life of the gazelle for what? For what purpose? That the lion may live. And you and I, in in a similar way, you and I, every time we sit down to eat dinner, we we portray the gospel in 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 a very small measure. And you may say, well, what? What are you talking about? Think about what you're eating for a second. Even you vegetarians. <laughs> Even you vegetarians. You're eating salad. That salad, the lettuce, maybe not even willingly, had to die for you to have life. That steak 
That, that steak didn't, when we go to the grocery store, we can't think, well, the grocery store, that's where the stuff is at, right? We know this. You, you talk to people from the city, they would come out here and say, the, the, the grocery store, that's where we get food from. Newsflash, the steak doesn't live at the grocery store. The steak lived a life and now has died for you and I to have life. Every time we sit down to eat, the go- eat, eat dinner, we're portraying, declaring the gospel. Even unbelievers do this. Every, next time you're sitting down with an unbeliever for dinner, just say, isn't the gospel good? And they'll say, what are you talking about? This animal died for us that we may live. And in the same way, like measure, Christ has died for us, and he gives us life. He, he feeds us and sustains us, even though we don't even know it even though we're unaware of it. As we behold the undomesticated animals of creation with silent humility, we behold the undomesticated sovereign creator. So that's the animals, they, they trust God. Here's the second piece, though. I want you to see the mysteries of animals. There's something very mysterious about animals and the way God deals with animals. So the mystery of animals Listen to what he says. Now, I want to just bring this to your mind. Um, it'll be on the screen. You don't have to turn there. But in Job 7, listen to what Job was asking God at certain points. Job has had a big problem with timing. Job has really had a rub against, God, your timing is not what I want it to be. I don't like your timing. Listen to what he says. Has not a man a hard service on the earth? And are, are not his days like the days of a hired hand? Like a slave who longs for the shadow? Like a hired hand who looks for his wages? So I am allotted months of emptiness, and nights of misery are appointed to me. And now you, I could, we could point to a hundred examples in the book of Job, where he just says over and over again, God, I don't like your timing. I really don't like your timing. I don't think you really understand the timing that I'm experiencing. God just simply challenges Job and says, you can't even understand them. How on earth do you think you can understand me? You can't understand the animals and how things happen for them. How can you think you can understand anything about me? Here's the first example he gives. The first example is with birth. And he simply asks, when do they give birth? Do you know? Do, do, Job, Job, you sound like you know a lot about timing. Do you know when the deer gives birth? Do, oh, oh, you understand when the deer gives birth. You understand, what, you see them all. Listen to what he says. He says in verse, 30, verse 1 of chapter 39, Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Not only do you observe when they give birth, He goes down in verses 2 and 4, and he says, Can you number the months that they fulfill? Do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open, and they go out and do not return. The clear implication here is, Job, you don't even know when the deer gives birth. You don't even know how their babies are raised in the wild. How on earth can you say you understand timing? I want you to consider the profundity of this for a second. Every time I pull into the church, not every time, but most of the time I pull into the church, there'll be three or four deer up here on the hill grazing. And now that's a very small number, right? The three or four. 
But I want you to consider something. Take just one of those deer. If what, Job is, if what God's saying to Job is true, which I would say that it is, he's saying that every time one of those deer get pregnant, he's aware of it. Not just every time they get pregnant, but also the entire length of their pregnancy. Not only the entire length of their pregnancy, the birth experience. Not only the birth experience, but also their whole experience of when they become little, they literally are able to get up and walk around. And oh yeah, by the way, when they leave their mother. Now that's one deer out here in the, the, the vast array of the Saharas of the world. And God's saying, I know every one of them. I don't know the last time you sat in a field and watched about 100 deer or 50 deer. Or maybe if you went to Africa and literally looked at the Sahara and saw thousands of animals. And God's saying, hey, Job, do you know one of their birth periods? No. He's saying, I know every one of them. I know every one of them. You can't understand them, Job. How do you think you can understand me? How do you think you can understand my timing? And if this is true for the dear mothers, let me tell you, how much more so for you? I don't know, in the experience of a mother, I've talked to my wife enough, and I've asked other mothers in passing to know that the, that the experience of, of pregnancy, or lack thereof, can be a very lonely time. It can feel like no one else understands what I'm going through. And I can tell you from these, these verses in Job, God knows. Not only does he know, not only is he aware, but he's so presently aware of every nursing deer, every nursing doe, and every nursing and mother who has had or can't have children. He's aware. He's not just aware, but he watches them. How can you understand them if you can't understand me? That's what he's asking him. So not only birth, though. So he says birth, but also the next thing is instinct. Instinct. Why do they act this way? And again, I do not want to be, us to be deceived and think what I mean by that is some weird scientific, why does the bird fly south? Sure, the bird flies south because it gets cold up here. We know that, okay? But here's my question. How does the bird know where to go? And science literally looks at this and they're like, we don't know. They have an internal compass. They know exactly where to go. And we could give example after example of why animals act like this. And he asked Job, verse 5 of 39, listen to what he says. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I have given the arid plain for his home. The salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. And the simple question to Job is, why does the donkey act like that? Why does the donkey choose to live in a place where there's no food? The wild donkey lives in a place, and God literally gives it the freedom that says it can go anywhere. And it chooses to live out in the middle of nowhere. And he's basically putting to Job, if God acts this way, or if, if I allow them to providentially live in the middle of nowhere, who are you to say? Who are you to say why they act like that? Or take the hawk. Jump down to verse 26. He does the same thing with the hawk. 
He says, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? He basically says, hey, Job, do you make the bird migrate? Have you ever, have you ever just looked in the night sky, or the, not the night sky, the day sky, and saw geese flying? Geese, geese are amazing in that way. They fly in a V, and they know every year when they need to leave and when they need to come. And oh yeah, by the way, they not only know that, but they do it without anyone instructing them. Without anyone saying, hey, hey geese, it's time to leave now. No. They get up, they fly away, and we could give example after example after example of this. And he basically says, hey Job, do you understand that? Do you understand how they act like that? How could you understand me then? You can't even understand the bird, <laughs> let alone how can you understand me? Or, or take one more, domestication. And then he asks, why don't you tame them? I want you to have in your mind, you're about to, I'm going to talk about the wild ox. What I want you to have in your mind is not just some wild bull. I want you to have in your mind something more like the, the Cape Buffalo. If you've ever seen a Cape Buffalo, they're, they're ginormous. They are ginormous enough that they don't tame, let me t- hint, they don't tame the Cape Buffalo. You don't tame that creature. And he asks Job, is the wild ox willing to serve you? Is the, is the Cape Buffalo willing to serve you? Will he spend a night at your manger? Can you, he says, can you hold it in the furrow with a harness? Will it till the valleys behind you? Will you rely on it for its great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to it? Can you trust it to haul in your grain and bring it to your threshing floor? Here's the answer. No. You can't even, you can't even tame the Cape Buffalo. You can't even tame wild bulls. How do you think you can understand me? How do you think you can understand that? You can't tame the creatures that God put on the creation, and let alone, then Job, Job's question to him is, you can't tame them. How do you think you can tame me? The crazy thing is that Job actually probably could tame the, the, this beast in this way. But God's whole point here is, you can't tame them. You can't understand them. How do you think you can understand me? And as we behold the undomesticated animals of creation, with silent humility, we begin to behold the undomesticated sovereign creator. So there we've seen the animals trusting God's provision. Now we see the the animals, um, the the misunderstanding of, of Job in that way. I want you to consider this. It's the foolishness of animals. Let me ask you a question as you think about the foolishness of animals. Do you think God has a sense of humor? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever just looked at a creation, and I thought of a creature, and just thought, is this a joke? Is this, is this a joke? And again, I was going to have like all sorts of different pictures. We could, have, we could have fish and all sorts of different things. You just, just Google animals in that way that are funny. And you think often, has God got a sense of humor? <laughs> Why would he create the... I mean, think of the example. He gives the example of the ostrich. And he says, you can't explain them. How can you explain me? Job, you can't explain the silliness of creation. How do you think you can explain me? And we see the foolishness. And it's simply, do you give the lack of good sense? The foolishness, the lack of good sense. 
And he says in verse 13, now I'm jumping around to several different versions. Some of these are out of the NIV, some of these are out of the uh, NET. But he says, the wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare with the wings and feathers of the stork. Just some weird facts for you. The ostrich is the heaviest living bird that stands at an average of six feet tall. It weighs over 220 pounds. Unlike most birds, the ostrich doesn't fly, but the ostrich can run up to 50 miles an hour. I'm not sure if you've ever just looked at an ostrich. It's a weird creature. It is a weird, weird creature. And he says, uh, he says in verse 18, if you jump down there, he says, yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at the horse and the rider. So, oh yeah, by the way, you look at this weird creature and all you could think is, why would God create that? Why would he create it? And his answer to Job is, you don't understand why I did that. Why do you think you can understand me in that way? You can't explain why I did that, but can you explain me? Several folklore, ancient folklore, said that they were the epitome of stupid, the ostrich. This is what, this is, not only do they look funny, but they're also stupid, And God knows this. He says in verse 14, look at what he says in verse 14. He says, for she leaves, or she leaves her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not for her labor. She cares not that her labor was in vain. For God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. And God's literally saying, hey Job, do you know why I made the ostrich stupid? You, you all know that it's stupid. And he, God's even saying that. He says, I didn't give her wisdom to know that. I didn't give her wisdom. You know why the, the ostrich does that? Why the ostrich leaves it at its eggs? And unlike the mother bear that protects her cubs, she says, where did I leave my eggs again? She wanders away. She runs away. She thinks it's funny. I'm serious. Like, this is literally what God's Word says. It's, it's funny to think about. It really is. And the answer is, you don't know. I don't know. You can't explain it. I can't explain it. And that's the wonder of this. He says, you can't explain them, Job. How do you think you can explain me? The answer is, you can't. And just so we're clear, God does have a sense of humor. Go look at some fish in the sea. They look ridiculous. <laughs> and the only reason is, God's funny. When he made that one, he said, you're going to look silly, and that's okay. I like that. <laughs> so, yeah, as we behold the undomesticated animals of creation with silent humility, we behold the undomesticated sovereign creator. So that's the foolishness of animals. I'm going to show you the strength of animals. And his simple answer here is, you are inferior to them, how much more so to me? You are so small and insignificant in comparison to them. How much more so to me? And he shows them first mighty in battle. And he asks, did you give them strength? Mighty in battle, did you give them strength? And he asks, did you give the horse his might? Do you clothe the neck with a mane? Now, I want to be very clear. The horse at the time of Job would have been the equivalent of what we would describe as the nuclear war. It would have been the nuclear weapon in that way. To say that 
people had horses would be to say that they had the advantage in battle. We could point to many places in the Old Testament to show this. The war horse, as one commentator said, he described it as the nuclear weapon for Job's time. This would have been the very thing that the Sabaeans likely would have rode in on and took all Job's stuff. And he asked Job, hey, do you give the horse its strength? Do you make the horse terrifyingly strong? Obvious answer, not a chance. Listen to how he describes it. This is one of the most fearful and terrifying war machines of Job's time. And this is what he says. Do you make him leap like a locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. I don't know if you've ever been, I've never been in a battle, like a hand-to-hand sword and spear battle, but horses are a next level in that. And let's be very clear, the horse would be terrifying if you have people riding on horses. He says in verse 21, he paws in the valley and exalts in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. That's the horse, he says. And he says in verse 23, he laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet says, sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. And he's basically saying, you are nothing in comparison to the warhorse. You are inferior to the warhorse. How much more so to me? But then he gives, now he takes, so he takes Job to, the, to this great creature, this great warhorse, but he also then takes him, he tells him to look up. And he says, the highest heights, that's what he looks at, the highest heights, can you go where they go? Now, I want to be clear about something. The eagle is the symbol of our nation. And the reason why it's the symbol of our nation is it represents strength. I was, I was doing some weird, weird Google searches this week. How high can the eagle fly? Did you know the eagle can fly at the same height of a 747? I want you to think about that for a second. I don't know if you've ever flown in a 747. They fly at almost 30,000 feet. 30,000 feet. And, and like when, when we started flying at 30,000 feet, people were like, whoa, that's huge. And the eagle's like, so? Eagle's not even the highest flying bird. <laughs> there's, there's birds literally that are like flying in the lower atmosphere of space. This is meant to be like, that's pretty impressive. And he asks him, is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock wall he dwells and makes his home. On the rocky crag and stronghold. The places, basically he's saying, hey Job, can you, can you live up there? Look up on that mountain. You see that place where there's nothing that can live up there? Oh, by the way, the eagle, he lives up there. From there, he spies out his prey. His eyes behold it from afar. His young ones suck up blood where the slain are. There he is. And his simple point is, you are inferior to them. How much more so to me? As we behold the undomesticated animals of creation with silent humility, we behold the undomesticated sovereign creator. This is the first time in history 
Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe God's done this always with sufferers. But there's a man sitting in his ashes suffering, and God literally brings out National Geographic and says, do you know where that came from? Do, like, let me, let me show you. Do you know where the eagle, do you know how he's that way? Wait, let me give you another one. Do you know how, where the deer gives birth? And all of this is meant to do one thing to Job. It's to humble him. It's to make him stand and say, I have no clue. Sorry I even spoke. Listen to what he says in verse 1 of chapter 40. He says, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. He's basically saying, Hey Job, I'm not going to answer any of your questions. You know why? Because you can't answer any of mine. Because you don't understand me. And his, the, simple, the last section here is simply, can you correct him? And it's that you are unworthy. How will you respond to me? You are unworthy. How can you respond to me? And listen to what Job then responds to God. This is a very, like, pinnacle moment. Is, God, is Job going to respond with a puffed-up, proud attitude? Or is he going to respond in humility? Listen to what he does. Then, the Lord, then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. And very wisely, like the Proverbs instruct us, like, like Paul read this morning, Proverbs thirty thirty two. if you have been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you've been devising evil, put your hand over your mouth. That's wisdom in that moment. Wisdom says, I'm going to be silent. And it's simply humbled in silence. What shall I answer you? Humbled in silence. I love what David, Derek Kidner, he went on to say. He says, God, in referring to God, he says, God cuts us down to size, treating us not as philosophers, but as children, limited in mind, puny in body, whose first and fundamental grasp of truth must be known, must be to know the difference between our place and God's and to accept it. I want you to hear that one more time, that last end. Whose first and fundamental grasp of truth must be to know the difference between our place and God's and to accept it. I would argue that most people can't even begin to hear the gospel because they don't understand this key principle, that they think that their place and God's place is the same. They think that their place and God's place, they're just like Job in that way, or where Job was getting to. And they're saying, You're, like, you, you answer me. That's what they were trying to say. And Kidner's what he's saying here is, there, if you don't understand the difference of your place and God's place, you will never accept the gospel. Job's silence comes because he realized he's spoken wrongly. His silence is present because he's acknowledging his proud attitudes toward God. You are unworthy. How will you respond to me? Now, I want to be clear. 
I'm not telling us to go outside and wait for a Job-like experience. There's a tendency, we could look at this experience with Job and think, if only God sat down and watched National Geographic with me, then I would get it. Then I would understand. And I want to say, no, 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 no. The experience of Job, unlike our experience, is special, okay? What Job is experienced, what he has experienced, is awe and wonder at the greatness of God. And I'm arguing that we behold the greatness of God. Now, Job lived at a time, I want to be very clear, Job lived at a time that the way God spoke to people was he did that, what, he, what, we, what we've witnessed. He sits down with them and he explains in such a way that we don't understand, out of a whirlwind. We shouldn't expect for a whirlwind to come to our house next week. I'll say it like that. Because the reason is that God, we live at a time that God now speaks through his word. And like the Apostle Paul, what he says in Romans 3, he says that the law has actually revealed what God's standards are. That the law actually does what what has happened to Job. The law reveals what God's like to us. He says in verse, you can turn there actually, turn there, and this this is where we'll end. Uh, Romans 3. You want to turn there real quick. Now, this this passage comes at a time that Paul is decisively trying to show that both Jews and Greeks are sinful and stand condemned before God. And he says in in verse 9 of chapter 3, He says, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So there it is. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. And he says the the Jews and the Greeks are under sin because of the law. This is what he says. Now jump down to verse 19. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. And here's what the law does. Notice what the law does. That every mouth may be stopped and that all the world and all the world may become guilt, guilty before God. Paul is picking up the idea here that the law, which showed just how sinful humanity is, should cause or will cause all humanity to do one simple thing, to put their mouth, hand over their mouth and not speak. The reason they aren't speaking is not because they've ran out of words to say, The reason they're not speaking is because they realize that their challenges are foolish. They realize that they have no rebuttals. They have no excuse. Now, this hasn't happened yet. But one day, one day, there will come a day that one day God will hold all men and women accountable. And all men and women, the only response of every sinful nation, every sinful person will be simply hand over the mouth. I cannot speak, and I will be held accountable. And I want to charge, if, there, if you're not a Christian here today, I charge today to you, I want, I want to present to you that this will be your position someday. I want you to consider a simple question. Where does your righteousness come from? Because one day you will stand and you will, you will only be able to put your hand over your mouth knowing that judgment, only judgment is coming.
I'll put it to you like this. One day, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And what will you say? Now, the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is not a greater resolve. It's not a greater, I'll try harder. The Christian knows where their righteousness comes from. The Christian knows his own unworthiness. The Christian knows his own insufficiency. The Christian agrees with what the Apostle Paul says then in verse 20. Notice what he says. I should go to 19 and 20. So 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty or liable before God. And then he says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the, knowledge, by the law is the knowledge of sin. So what he's saying here simply is the law, the whole Old Testament, it only just comes and convicts. That's all it does. It comes and it convicts and it, 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 it shows how sinful that we are. Now, that's not all it does. We could talk about the third use of the law. We're not going to do that. But we're left speechless. When we only see the law... We are left speechless under the weight of our sin and guilt and condemnation. But he doesn't stop there. And praise be to God, he doesn't stop there. He says in verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the position that humanity, I want you to have this in your mind, the position that humanity finds itself is the same position Job finds himself in. Speechless before a holy, magnificent, undomesticated, sovereign God. But he says, the righteousness of God, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The only way, brothers and sisters, me and you, will be able to remove the hand from our mouth is that we be able to utter, I believe on the Lord Jesus. I trust in Him. I have faith in Him. Because he says from there, that's where the righteousness of God comes from. He says then, for there is no distinction. For all, that's me and you and everyone, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he doesn't stop there, and praise be to God, he doesn't stop there. He says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a wrath-bearing sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. Brothers and sisters, the only way we are able to remove the hand from our mouth and realize that we are no longer guilty and condemned, is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's by the righteousness of God given to us as a gift. You know, I said the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is very simply, the Christian knows he can't try to be a Christian. The Christian knows I don't try to be a Christian. I don't know if you've ever had the experience sitting down at Christmas and someone brings in a large gift, and the gift, and that you weren't expecting it, it's not one where, like, mom you knew was getting you some gifts. It's someone that you didn't think was going to bring you a gift. But they come in, and they say, this big gift, this one's for you. Have you ever had that experience? 
And there's a lot of things that roll through our mind. We're like, oh my goodness, I didn't even get it. I didn't get them anything. <laughs> I didn't get them anything. I, 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 uh, I'm going to have to get them something next year. We're already like on Amazon trying to get them something for next year. And it's like, the picture here is that God, in his mercy, has brought the world the greatest present he could, he could bring them. The greatest Ferrari has just rolled in the driveway, and he says, this one's for you all. For God so loved the world that he's given his son. He doesn't say, oh, you're going to pay me back, right? You got, you got me next year, right? No. He comes and he says, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received, here it is, don't miss it, not by trying, not by working hard, by faith. There it is, brothers and sisters. You want to see, we have the experience of Job right here in God's word. We stand with under the law condemned, but in Jesus Christ, we are made righteous. And he says in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. His whole point there is to say, God is the one who makes us righteous and he does it justly by giving his son as a gift to be received by faith. And brothers and sisters, as we behold the undomesticated animals of creation, we, in like measure to Job, except beholding the Lord Jesus with silent humility, behold the undomesticated sovereign creator. Here's the good, best news I could possibly tell you. This undomesticated sovereign creator has given you the greatest gift you could never repay him for. And he asks you, by faith, receive this gift. Receive it. And so live, and so have life. We're going to celebrate now the Lord's Supper. Uh, and I want us to turn now, and if the deacons, or if Tony and Jared, if you guys can come forward, we'll, we'll pass the elements. I want you to listen, though, to, to the Apostle Paul's words. 